Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 through 31. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses said to Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of, of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Exodus chapter 4. The theme of this day seems to be homecoming. Uh, that theme is manifesting itself in a number of different ways. For example, it's wonderful to have a bunch of our Cedarville students back, and uh, not just students, but people in that general vicinity are back home for spring break and a little, little vacation. The Elvez family is traveling back to their home country, Brazil, and in a few short hours, my mother-in-law will be boarding a plane to uh, head back to her home in Georgia. And uh, just to be clear about that one, if if I'm happy about that, it's only because she'll be reunited with her husband. Okay, I don't, don't get the wrong idea about that. But I don't think I need to explain to you people the, the joys and the blessings of family. So I, I expect that you'll fully understand the, the corresponding thrill of returning home after a long absence. You know, you know what that's like. And the homecoming theme figures prominently in our passage today, as Moses and Aaron have uh, been instructed by God to return to Egypt, and they're, they're embarking now on this great rescue mission. We've had lead up to this for a couple of weeks now, but now it's going to start in earnest. It's going to get pretty exciting uh, here in the next few chapters. Homecoming. I guess is not exactly the word because Egypt is not their home. 
I guess that's really the whole point. God, through Moses, is going to deliver this people from Egypt, the land of their oppression, the land of their slavery, and he's going to deliver them to their own land. It's going to be a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So Israel is going to eventually come into their home, and Egypt isn't it. But at this stage, what I mean by homecoming is that Moses is going to return to his people, his family, his brothers, as he refers to them here in verse 18. Now, this language of family is kind of shot through all of the the passage that's before us. We read about a father-in-law, a wife, a son, a bridegroom, a brother. But, But of all of the familial kind of language in this passage... here in the second half of Exodus chapter 4, the most beautiful, the most striking, is found in verse 22. In a word that is declared to Pharaoh that Israel is the Lord's firstborn son. Firstborn son. That is uh, as good as it gets. And this morning I'd like to explore some of these themes as they come to us from our passage, and we want to focus primarily on the idea of sonship, sonship, and we want to explore sonship in three areas. So if you're taking notes, these will be three kind of main headings that you can use to organize your thoughts. First of all, sons and liberty. Consider how sons relate to liberty. Sons and obedience in the second place, and then third, sons and worship. Sons, as it pertains to liberty, obedience, and worship. We'll take the first one first, sons and liberty. And as Americans, you know, the word sons and liberty together kind of rolls off the tongue very nicely. Uh, There's something natural, there's something very beautiful about pairing those two concepts. they, They sound like they would come together perfectly you know, to, to form the name of, say, a revolutionary group or, you know, a gun shop or uh, a biker gang or something. It, it's, it's the perfect sounding name. But I'm not confident that as Christians, we've given much thought to how central sonship is to our identity and also how central liberty The concept of freedom and liberty are to sonship and therefore to our identity. So I'm excited about this opportunity to explore that a little bit with you this morning. We'll come to the heart of it in short order, but first I want to draw your attention to, I think, a a more minor point that we're confronted with in the opening verses of this section. So yes, Moses has been commissioned by the Lord to... Um, to engage in this great task that's set before him. But it is still necessary, you'll notice, as a son, or technically as a son-in-law, it's, it's going to be necessary for him to gain his freedom. For the last 40 years, Moses has been living among the Midianites. Um, he's been in the wilderness. He, Not only that, but you recall that when he was first introduced to this clan and after he saved the shepherd girls uh, he became 
part of the, one of the most prominent families of that whole clan, the family of Ruel, a.k.a. Jethro, who was the priest of Midian. And when we came across Moses in the last chapter, we saw him on the backside of the wilderness, and he was said to be tending his father-in-law's flock. And the idea is that Moses, and picture this, he's 80 years old at this point, but Moses is still a man under authority. He, he can't just up and leave. That would be inappropriate. That would be disrespectful. And again, this is a very, very minor point, and so let me make a very, very minor point of application, but young people, millennials, Gen Zers, I don't know if you realize this, but this is something that by and large has been lost in your generation. The idea that you are under authority. And so take a lesson from 80-year-old Moses, who still comes to his father-in-law to ask permission to take his own family back to Egypt. Um, think about Moses next time you think it's okay to give your boss, you know, two hours notice that you're quitting. Again, just, just some, some food for thought there. It's a very minor point of the passage, but, but notice, notice, please, Moses' humility, his, his understanding of his place. He's a son. So as this section opens, we find Moses approaching his father-in-law. He's asking that he be granted his freedom. If a son is to experience liberty, then it's important that he gains it the proper way. I think it's fairly certain that, that Moses would have given his father-in-law Jethro kind of the full story. I don't, I don't think Moses is being dishonest here at the end of the day. I just think that what's being recorded for us in summary form really just shows us that Moses is casting his motive for this homecoming as a desire to check on the welfare of his brothers. Remember, the, he's talking about a people that have been oppressed and enslaved in Egypt for, for decades, ultimately, you know, for centuries. And Moses is here is asking to go to see whether they are even alive, which gives just another indication of how brutal their oppression actually was, like their lives were in danger. That, that's not an overstatement to ask, you know, to wonder about, even if people are alive, given that it wasn't too long ago that um, his brothers and he himself was under a death sentence under Pharaoh's genocidal poli policy of casting male babies into the Nile. Anyway, Moses' concern for the people is what is, is put on the, the forefront here for his father-in-law. And Jethro is very supportive and he says to Moses, go in peace, shalom, no problem. It, so it's, it's interesting that every time that, that Jethro appears in the narrative, and he's going to reappear in a few chapters, um, chapter 18 to be precise, we discover this man to be extremely kind, very helpful, very supportive, on board with the Lord's program and fully supporting Moses. It's a beautiful thing to see develop. So Moses's home going is going to be with his father-in-law's blessing and shalom. But more important, 
it's going to be by the leading of his heavenly father. And you can see this, especially in verse 19, where God gives Moses commands concerning his homecoming. He says, go back to Egypt. So that's the command, go, go back. But he also comforts him with the knowledge that the coast is now clear. Because you can imagine when you consider the circumstances that brought Moses to Midian in the first place, you could understand if Moses was a little bit apprehensive about returning. But the Lord graciously comforts him with the knowledge that the coast is now clear. You know, Moses doesn't have to worry about when he goes back to, to Goshen, you know, he's, he's probably going to be worried that his, his mugshot's going to be plastered all over the post office there in town. But the, but the Lord says, no, go, because all the men who were seeking your life are now dead. And I guess another way of saying that is that the wanted posters of all of Moses' enemies were plastered all over the walls of heaven or hell. And the Lord always gets his man. This, I love these little subtle things that, that creep up over and over in the narrative. If you just kind of track along and, and think to yourself, okay, what happens to the enemies of God? What happens to the people that set themselves up against the Lord and against his anointed? And time and time again, you'll see that the one that survives is God's man. All of God's enemies just die. The Lord is not going to be mocked. The Lord and his people always win. Under God's leading and under God's protection, Moses can return to Egypt in safety, in security. And so we read that Moses loaded up his wife and sons, and he had two sons by now. Gershom, who we were introduced to back in chapter 2, and Eleazar, who we haven't been formally introduced to yet, but obviously has been born by this point. Moses had his family ride on a donkey. He loaded up his donkey and he moved not to Beverly, but they, they headed back to the land of Egypt with the staff of God in his hand. Now, I wonder if that sounds familiar to you at all. Just the, the phrasing of all of that. Do, even if the details and the direction are a little bit different, is this ringing any bells? Maybe Christmas bells? In Matthew 2, we read of another man who put his wife and son on a donkey and headed for Egypt under the Lord's leading. And after some time, when the coast was clear, the Lord gave this command. He said to this man, rise, take the child and his mother and return, for those who sought the child's life are dead. These things, Matthew tells us, were spoken to fulfill what was said by the prophet Hosea, which was this, out of Egypt, I called my son. You see, the liberty of the sons of God is founded on the Lord's sovereign leading. And powerful protection. And, and those, both of those things are, are symbolized so beautifully in the tool that Moses is carrying in his right hand. The staff. 
A chapter ago, it was, it was just a staff. It was his staff. Now, it's, it's called the staff of God. And it's a perfect symbol of God's leading and God's power. Amazing things are going to be accomplished by God's staff for God's glory. So we come to the heart of the matter in terms of sonship and liberty in verses 21 and following. It's found in the Lord's instructions concerning what Moses needs to do and say to Pharaoh. As, as for what he's to do, it's all of the signs and wonders that the Lord gave Moses. He, he gave him the power to accomplish these signs, and that staff is the symbol of that. That staff itself is, as we saw, able to turn into a snake and back again. Moses' hand is able to become leprous just by sticking it into his, his uh, blazer. And uh, then he does it again, pulls it out, and it's whole again. And water turns to blood just by pouring it on the ground. But those are just a sampling, you understand. We're going to, that's just a preview. We're going to get to see a lot more signs of the miraculous power of God. Now, despite all of these miraculous signs, Pharaoh will not listen. He will not let the people go. The Lord has already predicted this, and predicted is not exactly the right word. It's too weak of a word. This was, but we'll just use it for lack of a better one. He predicted it back in chapter 3, verse 19. There he said, Pharaoh's not going to listen, and we got the impression there that the reason that Pharaoh wouldn't listen is because he's a stubborn mule, and he's going to just kind of harden his heart and refuse. That's the impression that we got back in 319. God said only, only when a mighty hand is leveled against him, only then would he be persuaded to let God's people go. But in our passage today, look at the second half of verse 21, we're given another reason for Pharaoh's refusal. The Lord says, I will harden his heart. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. And you think, what exactly is going on here? Will, is Pharaoh going to refuse to let Israel go because he's stubborn and hard-hearted on his own, by his own nature, by his own choice, by his own will? Or because the Lord is going to sovereignly, actively harden Pharaoh's heart. And this question, I'm sure you realize this by now, this question represents one of the most mysterious conundrums in all, in all of theology. You know, the interrelationship between divine sovereignty and human freedom we're talking about liberty, freedom. Do we have the, the freedom as human beings to, to, to will and to act and to do according to our own pleasure? If God is sovereign over everything, how, how is it possible at the same time that we can, we can freely choose and do things? It's a head-scratcher. 
We, we rightly talk about our liberty. Yes, but we also need to properly talk about God's absolute right to govern. Govern over all areas, not just certain ones. A, a government, a kingship, a sovereignty that even includes the stubborn heart of man. So what do we do with this? Well, for today, we're going to do nothing with this. Okay, we're, believe it or not, that's not a cop-out on my part. It might seem like it. I can understand if you thought that it was. But this same theme, this exact mystery, is going to crop up over and over again in the book of Exodus. So, Lord willing, we're going to have plenty of time to tackle it. However, I strongly believe that the beginning and the ultimate end of, of tackling this problem is to just kind of soak in the mystery of it. And so that's what I want you to do right now, you know, for the next month. I, I want you to just sit under the uncomfortable weight of this mystery. You, you understand that the Bible is the word of God. You, I know you, most of you anyways, are going to just remove off of the table, and rightly so, that there's contradiction here. No, we believe that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible word of God. There's no contradictions. But in the space of two chapters, two different reasons are given for Pharaoh's refusal to release the Israelites. Pharaoh's stubborn, and God's going to harden his heart. I'm saying sit with that. Okay, wrestle with it. Feel, just feel the tension. Let the, let the zit start forming on your forehead as you, as you wrestle with that. That's a good exercise for us to, to go through. That's the very best kind of preparation for dealing with this with maybe a little bit more substance in the future. So is that okay? Are you all okay? Okay, so we're moving on to what Moses is to say to Pharaoh. He's to do the signs. Here's what he's to speak, verse 22. And there's really three parts to this speech, if you want to break it down. Call them identity, instructions, implications. The first part has to do with the identity of the people of God. And this is the good stuff. Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. This is what needs to be said to Pharaoh. Pharaoh needs to know who he's messing with. And it turns out that this people that he's enslaved, this group of people that he is actively oppressing, wants to kill, the, the Lord is describing as his firstborn son. Now imagine how that statement would hit you. If you, if you were an Israelite, if you're part of the people of God, when, when you first hear that this is the message that God gives to Pharaoh, to hear that you're the Lord's firstborn son, to hear, to hear from the mouth of God himself that, that you are his most treasured possession, that you are the object of his greatest affection, you, you, couldn't, 
You couldn't be more highly valued. You couldn't be more deeply loved. That would be so comforting to hear in the midst of your hardship. Now imagine how such a statement would hit you if you're the Pharaoh. If you were accustomed to thinking as he was, if you're accustomed to, you know, if you were accustomed to acting as if you were the son of the gods, because that's what the culture believed you as the king to be, a son of the gods, imagine what it would be like to have your divine status questioned, challenged, and to learn that the people that you were oppressing were the sons of royalty, that they're challenging your claim to sonship, that they had their own. And you're hearing this from the father himself. Well, this word about Israel's identity flows naturally into an important instruction for the Pharaoh in verse 23. It may be obvious to you. It flows so naturally that it almost doesn't even need to be said. But here it said, let my son go that he may serve me. Pharaoh, it's not right that you would have my firstborn son. Pharaoh, it's not right that you would require my son to serve you. Let him go. Sons must be given their their liberty. I remember when I was a kid, I don't know, I think I was probably eight. There was this family that our family was very close with, and uh, they lived a couple of hours away, so we didn't get together with them very often, but we did as often as we could, and whenever we did get together, I played with Chris, who was the firstborn son of that family, and he and I were the same age, so we were, you know, thick as thieves. And one time, our families got together for a picnic in the park. I, I believe it was around Niagara Falls, and, uh, and Chris and I took off, as we did, and uh, we found this old pavilion where there was a bunch of old picnic tables stacked and, and old wooden benches kind of piled high on top of each other. And as eight-year-olds, me and Chris enjoyed just climbing all around and through and on top of all of this jungle gym, basically. And that was until some teenage boys came into the pavilion and they pulled out their jackknives and they, they were blocking our way out of our picnic table tunnels. And I don't know exactly what their plans were, but from our perspective, they were big and they were tough. They were shirtless. They, they had knives. That was kind of the scary part. And they weren't, wouldn't let us escape. You know, we were trying to get out of the tunnel of, of benches and they blocked it with their jackknife. Pretty scary, you know, if you're eight or nine or whatever I was. Pretty scary if you're 46, as I'm thinking about it. <laughs> scary until Chris's dad came looking for us. And I don't, I don't remember exactly what happened. You know, I'm cowering under picnic tables. All I know is that I heard this big booming, the big booming voice of Mr. Young yelling, let them go. And then the sound of jackknives hitting concrete. 
and teenage boys running for their lives. You don't mess with someone's sons. Sons must be given their liberty. You don't want to be the one between the Lord and his firstborn son. Given this identity, these instructions must be followed. And if not, there's going to be some serious implications. That's the third part. The Lord says to Pharaoh, let my firstborn son go or else you're going to be made to experience what it's like to be deprived of a firstborn son. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And this obviously is a preview of of the tenth and most severe plague. What fearful words for Pharaoh to hear. What comforting words for the people of Israel to hear. And these are not just words for them then. I hope you already understand by now. They're also words for us now. Do you understand that, that if you're in Christ, then you have the same identity? This is, I understand, this is hard for us to believe. This is very tricky to, to have this in our heads as our identity and to stick with it and to live in the light of it. And so that's why we need John's reality check. That's why we need his great reminder when he comes out and says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And, and we're like, yeah, yeah. He's like, no, that is what we are. You don't understand. You're a son. You're a son of the most high God. Or consider what the Apostle Paul says about us in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 15. He says, for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Brothers and sisters, friends, sonship is antithetical to slavery. Those two cannot coexist. Something's got to give, and and Pharaoh's fixing to find out which one's going to give. He's going to learn a lesson about sons and liberty. And I wonder, have you learned the lesson? Next time you want to give yourself over to that sin, have you considered your identity? Have you considered the spirit that you participate in is not the spirit of slavery? When you are anxious about tomorrow, when you're cowering in fear about what may be, Do you understand that you have not been called to fall back into fear? You're a son. You're a daughter of the living God. Let's turn to learn something about sons and obedience. Sons and obedience. What we have in verses 24 to 26 is one of the strangest interludes that you'll ever come across in scripture, I think. It's weird. It, it, it seems altogether out of place. And if you're careful, it might seem altogether uncharacteristic of God. 
So we read that along the way, when Moses and his wife Zipporah were, and, and the boys were kind of pulled over at a rest stop for the night on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. That's weird. That's not where we thought this narrative was, was heading. And we think, you know, what? I thought Moses was God's man. I, I thought Moses was the one that the Lord was raising up for the deliverance of his people. How, why is he now trying to kill him off? You don't kill off the hero in chapter 2. Four. Seems bizarre. Seems even schizophrenic. It seems to us, if we're not careful, it seems a bit like King Saul, you know, who one minute could be so kind and friendly with David, and the next minute he's, you know, trying to pin him to a wall with his spear. Is that what's going on here? Is, is the Lord just being temperamental, kind of flying off the handle? Now, I don't pretend to have all the answers, because honestly, I, this is one of the most difficult paragraphs in Exodus to interpret. The, and it stems from a lot of ambiguity with pronouns. There's lots of hymns and hisses. There's not a lot of pronoun hospitality in this particular passage. We're not sure what the antecedent to all of this is. Is, is it talking about Moses? Is it talking about uh, his sons? And if his sons, which one? The older one? The younger one? So the details are fuzzy, but if, if you can just kind of overlook that and step back, I think what you'll find is that the big picture is clear enough, even though you'll still have some questions about this. I, it seems that Moses' life was in danger. Perhaps he suddenly came across, you know, came down with this deadly illness. I don't know. The text doesn't exactly say. It just tells us that the Lord sought his life. And it's something that Moses and his wife immediately understood to be a direct result of the anger of God towards Moses. And specifically, they made this connection themselves. I thankfully didn't have to make this connection, but their subsequent actions made it very clear that they, they could they could connect the dots between God's righteous anger and something that they had failed to do, something that Moses had failed to do as the leader, and that was he'd failed to circumcise one of his sons. And remember that circumcision, that's not just some kind of random extra thing. This is, this is a right. This is a holy right. This is something that God had commanded Abraham and all of his descendants to perform on their male children. We read about this in Genesis chapter 17, verse 11. It says, You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And then comes the solemn warning. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So it seems as if Moses might have circumcised one of his sons, but not the other. And all of this is speculation, of course, but perhaps it's because 
his wife Zipporah kind of when she saw the first one being done she kind of objected to the second one again we don't exactly know but we do know that when Zipporah took a flint in her hand a very sharp sharp stone and performed the operation on her son we do know that God's wrath against Moses was averted that much is clear and this is also hard to know for sure but personally, you might read this a little differently, but personally, I get the impression that Zipporah was not thrilled at this whole deal, even after the fact. She threw the foreskin that she had cut off at Moses' feet, which is most likely a euphemism for something a little bit higher up. And she says, and I think she says this rather snarkily, she says, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So she's, she's regained her husband. She's pulled him back from the brink of death. She's, he, he's her husband. She saved him from certain death, but only through a bloody process that she finds disgusting. I don't know. I don't know much more than that. What do we make of all of this? This much is clear. It's a son's duty to obey. And Moses, being God's man, doesn't give him a pass on any of the Lord's righteous requirements. Furthermore, if Moses is going to have a ministry of calling God's people to, to covenant faithfulness, well then, it's going to be necessary, I hope you'd agree, it's going to be absolutely necessary that Moses personally demonstrate covenant faithfulness himself if he's going to lead god's people then it's going to be very necessary for him to have his own house in order and this incident serves as a sober reminder of how important it is to obey and to observe all that the lord has commanded when when god institutes a covenant sign we, we must not neglect it or treat it lightly. You, you might think that you're in, you're God's man, you and him are tight. But you understand if you're not obeying him, if you're not loyal to the things that he's, he's asking you to do, commanding you to do, then, then there's a big problem. And I think what an appropriate reminder as we prepare to participate in the Lord's Supper in a few minutes it turns out that it is deadly dangerous to partake of this table in an unworthy manner, in, a, in an unthinking or self-seeking way. You know, if you're, if you're planning to, to eat and to drink of this table and then just go out and live, live for yourself and engage in the same sin, then that's, that's deadly dangerous. You know, the Apostle Paul could write to a New Testament church, which is in the very same era of church history, redemptive history that we're in. So you can, you can make direct application here. He's writing to the church of Corinth, and Paul could say that their carelessness in this matter, the Lord's Supper, was why some of them were so sick and why some of them were even dying. Something else to note about Moses' sin. 
It's not what the psalmist would have called a secret fault, you know, a hidden sin, which I, in, in my understanding, that refers to something that we do or something that we fail to do without fully recognizing that they're sins. It, it, it's a sinning in a sort of ignorance. That's not what Moses was doing. He was sinning, as the Puritans would put it, in a, he was sinning with a high hand, which means he knew exactly what he was doing, or rather what he was not doing, what he was refusing to do. And that's, that much is clear from how quickly Moses and Zipporah knew how to remedy the situation. Obedience is required of sons and daughters. If you're a child of the living God, then by the power of the Spirit, you are called to observe all that is commanded of you. And the application here is very simple. Simple enough to say. It's trickier to do. That'll be the challenge to do it. Here's the application. Obey. Obey. I, I don't know exactly what that looks like for you, but you do. You're like Moses and Zipporah. You know immediately. It's that thing that's coming to mind right now. You know immediately that thing that you engage in or refuse to do. You know the sin that would invite the wrath of God. And so my challenge to you is, if you know the good that you ought to do, or if you know the evil, evil that you need to abstain from, do it. Stop it. The, the consequences of unrepentant sin might very well be deadly. The Lord's table, which is spread before us, is the perfect opportunity for us to reflect on the fact that for all of our failures to obey, and that includes every single one of us, for all of our sins of commission, for all of our sins of omission, for all of our hidden sins, for all of our presumptuous sins, there stands for us a savior. We have a bridegroom of blood. We, we have someone who has saved our souls from the brink of death. Someone who has made peace between us and a holy and righteous God. He made peace by the blood of his cross. In great love for a lost world, God put forward his firstborn son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our elder brother, who has made us sons and daughters of the Most High God. What a wonderful opportunity that we have to put that back in the forefront of our minds and in the center of our hearts. Let's just turn, uh, before we turn to the table, let's turn uh, very quickly to our third point, which has to do with the relationship between sons and worship. Sons and worship. I'll just say this in a couple minutes here. But just jump back to something I skipped over. Verse 23. I want to just point out a purpose statement. It might have been a bit misleading for me to say that sons are born for freedom. When you think freedom, 
chances are you're not thinking about it exactly right. When I, when I say freedom, when the Bible talks about freedom, we're not talking about an absolute sort of liberty where, you know, you're free from anyone's mastery and you can just answer to yourself and you do your own thing and go your own way. That's not what the Lord has in mind. And honestly, that's not even possible. We, we have illusions that that's possible, but that's not possible. We are going to serve someone. The question is, who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve a tyrant? Or are you going to serve a gracious savior? Look at the command that the Lord has for Pharaoh in verse 23. He says, let my son go that purpose he may serve me. This is emancipation for a particular purpose. And what's in view here is liberation from oppression and sin so that sons are freed up now to serve their father in, in keeping with the pattern of the first and second greatest commandments. We're freed up to, to love our God and our neighbor. As Galatians 5 says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. So here what, what we have here at the end of our passage is a preview of the people of Israel living in accordance with their purpose. We see them serving we see them worshiping. We're told that when Moses and Aaron arrived in Egypt, they assembled the elders, and uh, Aaron spoke to them the message that, that Moses had given to him to say, Moses himself having received it from the Lord. So in that chain, the message comes to the people, and we read in verse 31 that the people believed and if you're kind of tracking this, this whole subplot through the last couple of chapters, you remember that this was, this was something that Moses doubted. God had already said that this is what would happen, that the people would believe. And Moses, last week, Moses was like, no, the people are not going to believe. And so give me signs. The Lord gives them three signs. But the people believed. Just as God said, God, God's word is never in error. And then when they heard that the Lord had visited them, the people of Israel, when they, when they, had, when, when they heard this message, when it was reported to them that God had seen it and heard their cries, and visited them, what does it say? They bowed their heads and worshipped. And that's, that's exactly it, folks. Worship and service. That, that's exactly the right response when you're confronted with such a great and merciful God. Do you understand that worship and service are the purpose for which we've been created? They're the purpose for which we've been recreated. Worship ex is exactly the right response of a firstborn son in the face of such a compassionate, committed father. Just fall down on your face and worship 
this God. As we come now to this table, we remember that our merciful Father saw our affliction, that he visited us in the most astounding way that you could ever imagine that the Lord would visit us, and that is by sending his firstborn son, his beloved son, the the son with whom he is well pleased. And he sent his son to take all of our sins on his shoulders so that he could fully extinguish the righteous wrath of God that was seeking to kill us. But no, that wrath was averted and instead killed his, his son. And all of this was so that we could experience the full forgiveness of sins and, and so that we could now experience the glorious freedom of the sons of God. And so as we eat and drink these tokens of remembrance, let's do so in a spirit of confession and repentance, yes, but also in a spirit of, of worship. And then as we get up from this table and, and as we go on out of this place back into our lives, as we seek to live on the strength of this food, let's commit ourselves afresh to serving the Lord, pouring out our lives in service, all that we are, all that we have, in service to the Lord and to our neighbor until he comes. Amen? Amen.